It's the Creator Spaces show. I want to start with NFTs. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. I've been studying them for the past couple of weeks, like pretty closely. And it's so interesting. And every conversation I've had about it with like regular everyday people has just been, what the hell is it? Yeah, to answer that question, what the hell is it? Yeah, so it's I mean, for like, from my perspective, it's like hard to like dive down into what it is because NFTs aren't necessarily like one thing. But if you want to get an understanding for what it is, it's really easy to think about it as one thing. And that one thing is typically like valuables or collectibles. And I usually use the analogy of art because that's just the most use case that comes to mind and far and away the most popular right now and that's where it's been the most successful you've you've seen artists who made like the 6.6 million on a single piece of art through an nft auction and like basically to get it the main idea out is that you're creating a unique either one of one or one of very few items that exist on the blockchain which is just i like to tell people to think of it as like a general term for an accounting system a ledger something where everything is recorded and the value of that one thing that only exists in a limited amount of quantities its value comes from its scarcity and the value people will pay to own it. And so it's like a piece of painting, right? If you were to look at what are the costs associated with a painting, I'm sure there's probably $5 worth of supplies that went into making the Mona Lisa or something like that. Maybe paints are really expensive. It might be like $25. But the idea is that the price that someone would buy it for is like millions upon millions of dollars. And that value is determined by the scarcity of the item and how much people value it. And that's typically informed by goodwill which from an accounting perspective or a business perspective that's like the intangible back to the question what an nft is it's a unique item that you can buy sell and trade and there's only a limited amount of them and so you think about it like art it's like buying a painting a unique original painting the biggest thing that people ask me about is like okay if it's a digital picture or a digital painting or a song can't i just listen to it can't i just watch it you can, but you can also see the Mona Lisa whenever you want to as well. Or you can experience all these other things that are valuable and collectible, but it doesn't mean you own them. And so it's something that's like, it's not that it's hard to understand. It's like sometimes that is just like hard to accept because a lot of people can't imagine themselves paying 30 grand for a clip of LeBron James dunking in the NBA Finals. NFTs are a way for creators and creative types to engage their audience, but it also expands the audience that they can monetize by bringing in those people who are investors, speculators, who are looking to buy something, have it appreciate, and then sell it at a higher price, right? The arbitrators of the world as well, the speculators. Yeah, exactly. So the one thing I learned about working with people like YouTubers and TikTok people was that it is hard for them to monetize, especially through one of the most common ways, which is like merchandise. And that's because because like only a fraction of your following are going to buy something with your face on it. But with NFTs, because they can increase or decrease with value, they become interesting to a way wider market of people. And you definitely open up the amount of people that you can actually raise money from. Let's say if you're a course creator and you want to make sure that your course is not stolen, can you use NFT to basically create a certificate of authenticity and then imagine a world where a website will only accept your course if you have that certificate of authenticity? Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. So NFTs can really be like keys and there can be something on the other side of an NFT. And one of the things that somebody's doing, Justin Kahn, he is now becoming a content creator through YouTube videos and he launched his own NFTs and I haven't checked on them in a few days. 
But what they're doing, and this is like that issue where it's like, why would I want to own something that I can already publicly consume? The video is already on YouTube. I can already watch it. What's the point of ownership? And on the other side of that NFT is also the ability to hop on what they're calling shareholders call, kind of making a nod to like the financialization of people and treating people like shareholders. So I I think that's quite funny. There's use cases for this for like music, for example, where creators and musicians can actually sell exclusive, unreleased, unheard tracks, and then people can buy that through the NFT. But on the other side of the NFT is the ability to listen to that track. And now that musicians are enabled at scale to do that, it's going to become like completely changing. Like now you can actually own a track. And I think like for musicians, it's really interesting because even just today like i was on tiktok and some dj was like making a song that was a mashup and then he released the full thing on soundcloud but he could have easily released that as an unreleased or private track that the owner could then do what they want in terms of distribution with it I think there's so many different technologies that are currently very nascent, right? Like they're super young and they're not like really adopted. VR and AR are still at that stage where they're like toys and it's really on that community who is really into video games. They're the technologists, they're the early adopters. They don't care about bad experiences because one of the things that I realized, I'm like fairly new to crypto and I wasn't really into the idea of buying crypto until I found out about NFTs. And it just seems so interesting because I saw the connection to like creators and actually being able to monetize. And when I tried to sign up and I minted my own NFT, and I probably wasted $70, $80 on Ethereum by just not knowing how much to pay or not knowing what wallet to choose. And then I just found it so super user unfriendly. I, I think that's just Because right now, as much as there is hype about the technology, and as much as I'm a believer in it, right now, if I'm being dispassionate and honest, the products aren't there in order to enable a lot of like users to use it and accept it and understand it. For something like the Mona Lisa, if you own it, you can decide to take it private whenever you want. And just that I think a lot of people can't figure that out with digital products because with digital products, you can't really do anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this guy, but he's also a Canadian. His name's Matthew Ball. I believe he owns or he runs an investment firm, but he writes a lot. And one of the topics that he's written on is a topic called the metaverse. And mm-hmm. the metaverse is basically a virtual world where virtual and digital things exist. And one of the most interesting things he talks about is actually video games. So video games like Fortnite. And he talks a lot about how NFTs can actually have their value be understood through the metaverse. In that if you buy a one-of-one skin or like character, you can then wear it in the game and then people can see it. And they can be like, that guy's wearing something that only he or they own in the world. And so it's interesting how the displaying of something actually makes something value. I think with the growth of NFTs, in terms of a lot of people understanding them and using them, there's got to be places and products to be built that allow people to display them if they choose. And it's not just some private private collection of NFTs, which it currently is by default. It's really interesting space. 
I want to shift gears and talk about monetization in the sense of selling ads and selling sponsorships. So the best way that I can talk about an ad, it's not a part of the content, but it exists somewhere along the timeline of the content in the beginning, the middle, the end. And that's really just a time to pause from watching the story and say, this video is brought to you by Squarespace or whoever. With sponsored posts, you actually have like pretty much an entire content item. I'll say that because I don't want to speak to a specific vertical like YouTube or newsletters or TikTok, but you actually have one item of content that is purely about the product. So for example, Packy McCormick does this with Not Boring. He actually takes the sponsor of the article and will write about their business. So he talks about tech, SaaS, business strategy. And so he'll get sponsored by a company like Masterworks, which does fractional art, alternative assets, and he will speak purely about their their business. And so with that, it's actually really smart because he's actually getting his sponsor not only to just pay him to write the content, but also help him to write the content too, because he creates a bit of a partnership where they might get it for a cheaper price than what originally would happen. But he gets also access to a lot of people in the company, probably some data as well. He's able to write a really good article. Here's the thing with ads. It's absolutely brutal to actually get one for your newsletter. People, I think Mario Gabriel, who writes The the Generalist, was talking about how difficult it is. And this guy used to work in venture capital, so he's a fairly well-connected person. I mean, even for him, it's really difficult. Even with newsletters who are really successful in using advertising-based monetization models is that they have an entire sales team dedicated to getting an ad placement for every single edition of their newsletter. Morning Brew and The Hustle are the two greatest examples that I know of, and they both have dedicated sales teams of at least 7 to 15 people whose sole purpose is dialing phones, reaching out, talking to brands, getting them sold on newsletter advertising. It can take six weeks to get a brand deal. So with YouTube creators, TikTok people, the brands that work with them don't actually pay them a lot unless they're doing like huge things like Charlie DeMello, where they're like partnering with Dunkin' Donuts, where they actually have... Is there a oh, CPM involved in these sorts of transactions? Somewhat, but it's it's really obscure and not a lot of creators actually know exactly what their CPM is. They get informed a little bit if they're doing well on, let's say, YouTube, for example. Is it cost per thousand? So that's not, yeah, that, and that's not standard. For every content category, it has different prices, right? So if you're doing something really broad and you want to address men and women between the ages of like 18 to 45 in the US, like that's going to be like maybe $2. But if you want to target someone super specific, it's going to be more generally because there's more competition for it. It's like really interesting because you want to work with those creators who have high CPMs, but those creators with high CPMs don't have very large audiences. And what you start to realize with people who have um, TikTok and YouTube accounts, even if they have like 100, 200K in following that's not impressive and it, it, it doesn't sell products, believe it or not. And I learned this from a working with some creators on those platforms, but also talking with other people who have been doing influencer marketing for a lot longer than I have. And I remember I was on a call with somebody who had launched her own uh, subscription box service. And the one thing she ended the call with when we were talking about this was um, creators and influencers always believe they can sell more than they actually can. And that's really true, right? And so if we contrast that to newsletters, newsletter readers tend to be a lot more engaged. And the newsletters that are like domain specific, 
the readers are a lot more engaged in the subject matter. It's not very surface levelly, And so more engaged buyers, more likely to actually sell products. And so you get a lot more ROI from a brand's perspective. So they're willing to put more money in. talk about newsletter collectives and i want to talk about them in relation to nfts mm-hmm. what if there was a newsletter collective that used an nft to signify their membership yeah so i think we were talking with like that uh key use case for nfts it's, it's something that's going to work really well and i think like because right now like nfts are super novel and unique and when people see them you know they go gangbusters for it especially if you're a newsletter collective and that's your niche that can be a huge part of a growth strategy or a go to market where it's like the only way to get access to this is through purchasing this nft right the one thing and to be honest with you i haven't really explored this but it's something that's really interesting is like are you going to make enough money through the appreciation of that token? Because there has to be a scarce amount of them. And, you know, the royalties on it from anybody who sells or trades one in the future. Are you going to make more from that as opposed to just charging somebody 10 bucks a month? That dynamic's really interesting because I think with gating your content, you're limiting like the viral factor, the K factor that your content has because only a limited amount of people are going to talk about it, right? And so you can kind of like cite the FOMO that you might get from being outside the club, so to speak. But that's not going to drive subscriptions because when you think about advertising-based revenue for newsletters, as long as you get more people subscribing... And if your newsletter is free, people are just going to add that thing onto their cart, like no problem, because people mass subscribe to emails and newsletters all the time. You're going to get more eyes, and then that's going to just naturally grow the amount you're able to charge via CPM. For example, like a CPM-based pricing more and more. And so there's definitely like trade-offs between the two monetization models. But personally, I'm a fan. I'm a believer in the ad-based one, as long as you're serious about taking this and becoming that kind of independent media company as a single person. getting ads it definitely is difficult but if you're serious about being a creator and like a newsletter isn't something that you're just like writing in your spare time you definitely shouldn't constrain yourself to one model in particular and definitely don't constrain yourself in your k factor and the discoverability of your content because that's really what grows your content good content really drives subscriptions and so if you're going to write a really good piece on something you better make it free and open because that's really what's going to drive the next wave of your subscribers 